Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Father, um, you do a miracle whenever somebody preaches your word. Uh, Just that, one person speaking and you having a thousand conversations. I pray right now that you would enter into living rooms and homes of people that are watching online by your Holy Spirit, speak to non-believers and draw them to yourself irresistibly, speak to believers and encourage their faith. I pray for this room that I'm standing in, that your Spirit would walk up and down the aisles and tap people on the shoulders, comfort them, convict them, change them. I pray for the believers that are in this room, that your Holy Spirit is indwelling right now, that you would speak to them, even if it has nothing to do with anything I say today, will you speak a word to them today? And I pray for me as I I speak that I communicate your truth clearly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we are a blessed people, aren't we? I'm glad you are thankful that you would respond to that. I don't know how many of you spent time on social media yesterday remembering the sacrifices of so many uh, from 9-11, but for me it got me reflecting to, I remember, you know, 20 years ago when it was like if you were living in this country, you were grateful just to be in this country. And I still am. I know it's kind of trendy to say like how America's bad and some of those kinds of things, but I think we live in the greatest country in the world, and uh, I hope that, yeah, praise the Lord. And I wonder if I asked you to list out your blessings, how long that would take you? Like think about that. Some of you, you'd be so blessed that it would take the rest of our time. If I just said, hey, we're going to take a minute and uh, let you write out your blessings, and we waited till the last person was done, how long would that take you? And you'd list like living in this country, your family, your church family, uh, relationships, things that God's done in your life, your salvation, Lord willing, those of you who know Jesus, and, and you start thinking through all the blessings that God has done in your life. And, and I wasn't, this isn't the intro I was going to give. Uh, when Nikki was leading us in worship, I felt like the Lord uh, kind of changed this message this morning. And so, Nikki, this is your fault. This is the worst message I've ever preached. Um, but I hadn't seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. It's been probably like, I don't know how old that movie is, 15 or 20 years since I've seen that movie. But if you remember, remember Tom Hanks is leading the platoon of guys. It's a huge battle. I believe it was World War II. Uh, they were going into Germany to find Private Ryan. His two brothers had died, if I remember the movie correctly, and they were pulling him out of the war so that mom didn't lose all three of her sons. And Matt Damon was Private Ryan. And the scene that I, I do remember is when they find him. He's securing a bridge. It's one of, I think, two bridges that are left. And he can't let the Germans come across this bridge. And Tom Hanks, they've lost men in their platoon coming to get him. It's been a battle to find him. And Damon doesn't want to go. Private Ryan does not want to leave. And he says, you know, I've got a job here. This is my job to secure this bridge. I'm going to secure this bridge. And they're like, you're leaving, soldier. And then he's like, well, I've worked just as hard as these other men have worked. Why am I leaving? And they're not leaving, kind of thinking like the honor of, I'm going to go back. I'm going to say they pulled me out because, well, I couldn't handle it, but they could handle it. And he's wrestling with all of this verbally. And Tom Hanks says to him, you know, we've lost, and they said the names of the guys they've lost, I can't remember because it's been so long, maybe I'll watch a little clip in between services for the next service. But Private Ryan ends up asking this question, why me? Why, why are you pulling me out of the battle? And that's the question I want us to ask today. Why are you so blessed? We're so blessed with all of these blessings, but why, why, why are you so blessed? If you have your Bibles, we're going to talk about that from Ephesians chapter 1 today. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, we say as a church all the time, we want you to experience such spiritual transformation 
that it leads to gospel saturation in your community where you live and work and play and all the stuff that you do, that, that you'd be so changed by Jesus that Jesus would leak out of you into your community and then change other people's lives. Well, you know, that's exactly what happened in Ephesus. I'll share with you some of the background and different things as we're walking through this series. I'm not going to give you the whole thing in this first sermon of all the stuff that's taking place, but I know many of you like to study on your own. Go back and read Acts chapter 19 and 20 if you want to know the context for the book of Ephesians. And what's happened is there's a guy who's experienced such spiritual transformation. His name used to be Saul, now it's Paul. He was a terrorist that was going door to door trying to find Christians to arrest them and kill them. So some of you can put your mind around that right now with what's happening in Afghanistan. There's Taliban that's going door to door to try and kill your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're fleeing, some of them fleeing to the mountains, fleeing to other countries, hiding there. That was Paul. But God so radically transformed his life that God then uses him to not only saturate his community with the gospel, but he starts traveling around and starting churches in different places, and he ends up writing the majority of the books that we have in the New Testament are written by a former terrorist who came to Christ. And then the people in Ephesus, they're a mixed group. Like if you read Acts chapter 19 and 20, uh, when Paul shows up there, he says to these people that are preaching and they're talking about God and they're talking about the New Testament stuff, he says, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they say, and how many churches could say this? We haven't heard of the Holy Spirit. They're religious, but they haven't experienced a revolution in their hearts. And that's part of what becomes the church of Ephesus. There's another group of people in the church of Ephesus that burn a bunch of magic books, uh, somewhere between five and seven million dollars worth of magic books. They're forsaking their career. They're forsaking their family. They're turning away from all that stuff to turn to Christ. And so you got people coming from the occult. You got people that are moralists. You got murderers. You got everything in between. It's a mix of this church in Ephesus. And what happens there is over a, a two to three year period of time, uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 10, it's such a cool verse. We've got to read it to you. This continued, talking about them preaching the gospel, for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. <laughs> and we talk about at our church, owning your impact. And I don't know what that means for you. I don't know what your context is. I don't know exactly where you live and move and have your being, Acts chapter 17. But if you're, say, a teacher, can you imagine if this verse were said about your ministry? Like you, you over the next two years at your school, as a result of your life and your testimony, every other teacher has heard the gospel. Or you're, 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 my wife's a nurse, she works on a floor. Can you imagine, if, like for her, on that nursing floor, that every other tech and every other clerk and every other secretary and every other nurse on that whole region of the hospital heard the gospel as a result of her ministry? Or, or you're a police officer, your whole department's heard the gospel in the next two years. That's your, that's your impact. And that's what Paul was doing here an emphasis, and it started this church, this spiritual transformation that led to gospel saturation, and now it's been 10 years since he's been there. And he writes a letter back to them, and his desire for them is at the very end of the book, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24, it's only six chapters. He says, I want you to have an incorruptible love because you live in a broken and corrupted world, but I want you to have a pure and passionate love for Christ. And so that's my hope for you that as we walk through this book, that God ignites in your heart a pure and passionate love for Jesus that makes you stand out in this world. Amen? Look what Paul says to them as he starts. We'll just read the first three verses. Lord willing, uh, we'll go through verse 14 today if there's enough time. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He didn't choose that. God chose him. To the saints, that's what he gives them as a title, these occult people, black magic folks, murderers, and religious folks. To the saints who are in Ephesus, 
and are faithful in Christ Jesus. That's a key phrase to this whole book. So you, anytime we're reading and you see the in Him, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you might want to underline that. Uh, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so verse 3 really sets up the, the whole passage here. And what happens in verse 3 is he says, bless God because he's blessed you. And then verses 4 through 14, which are all one sentence in Greek. So grammar Nazis on social media, let that digest us for the rest of the service. It's over 200 words. And he just goes through blessing after blessing after blessing. Many of them, I bet, you may have never even thought of in your life. If we spent the rest of the hour together writing out your blessings, would you have listed some of these? Let me just go over verses 4 through 14. Verse 4, he chose us. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. So think about what that means. Think about who he is, that he's adopted you. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That you are a son or daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, verse 5. Verse 6, he lavishes, not just gives, but lavishes his grace upon us. Verse 7, for forgiveness and redemption. Verse 8, makes known the mystery of his will. Verse 9, the purpose of his kind intentions. Verse 11, predestines us according to his purpose. Verse 11 also works all things after his counsel. Verse 13, he seals us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a pledge, a guarantee. If you have the NIV, the deposit in your life. Verse 11 and verse 14 talks about our inheritance. God's given us some blessings, hasn't he? Don't worry, we're going to go back through that. I can still talk fast. <laughs> I was sitting in my office right after sabbatical before I got COVID a couple weeks ago, and uh, Danny, our student pastor, came in and he goes, you talk slower now. <laughs> I said, come to me in two weeks and tell me if that's still the case or not. But God's blessed us. You look at these verses, there's tons of blessings. Any God that's able to bless like that's a powerful God, amen? Let me brag about him for a second. Think about God's power. He spoke everything into existence when there was nothing. Theologians call that ex nihilo. Out of nothing, he spoke creation. He parted the Red Seas. That's power. Dry ground. There was a sea, there was a sea over top. Dry ground. They walk across on dry ground. That's power. Jesus' ministry and his miracles turns water to wine. Amen, Baptist. There he walks on water. He takes a Lunchable, feeds 5,000 people. He touches blind eyes, opens deaf ears, makes lame people walk. He's got power, raises the dead. He himself is dead, buried after three days, raised from the dead. Amen? Our God has power. But if all he had was power, all he'd be is scary. He doesn't just have power, he's personal. And the blessings that I just read to you are incredibly personal. And what you see, the way that Paul has written these out very, in, in very intentionally, as he talks about your blessings from the past, your blessings right now, and your blessings in the future. And he talks about how they're all done by the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, one God, three persons, all working all the time. So with this outline, I'm not saying the Father used to work and the Son now works and the Holy Spirit's gonna work, no. But the way this passage is broken down is it talks about God the Father's work in eternity past to bless you. God the Son's work currently, right now, blessing you. God the Holy Spirit's work to promise and guarantee your blessings in the future, and the best is yet to come. And that's our outline of this passage. So the first point is this, that God the Father has been blessing you since eternity past. God the Father has been blessing you since eternity past. And that's verses 3 through 6, those of you who like to take notes. And verse 3 sets this whole thing up. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, past tense, in Christ, you can underline that, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
So in other words, God is the source of our blessing. He blessed us, so we should bless Him. But what are these blessings? Verse 4, even as He chose us, chose us. That's interesting. I bet most of us wouldn't have listed that if we spent the next hour writing down our blessings in our life, that we've been chosen by God. See, here's the really interesting thing, and this will happen in some of your small groups this week, is we'll talk about God choosing us. And if you read a little bit further, it says He predestined us, and later the word predestination is used in this passage, and Christians get funny about that stuff. Because there's two camps, really, when it talks about making a decision. There's the people that focus on God choosing and God making a decision and that God had a choice, but there's people who don't like that because it means if God chose some, He didn't choose others. And so they talk about God's free will or our man's free will, that we make a choice and that we have responsibility to choose. And they tend to think that wherever side they lean, that the other people are kind of dumb. You've never seen that before, have you? I remember one time I was in seminary. I went to school in Texas uh, for, for seminary stuff, and um, I was at a seminary. I was the only intern at this huge church that I was at that was at Dallas Theological Seminaries in Dallas, Texas. There was another seminary 45 minutes away, um, Southwestern Seminary, a Southern Baptist seminary, and the reputations were that at Dallas Seminary, we tended to focus on God's choosing. Some people use the word election, talk about election. But at the other seminary, it's about man's choice, that we all have a free will. And, we, and then, so the people at that school thought that we never shared the gospel because God picked everything. It's all done, so we don't have anything to do. We're just kind of waiting for Jesus to come back. And so I'm sitting at this baseball game with a pastor, a bunch of interns, and this lady, this girl, I didn't even know who she was, leans in and she says, hey, don't you go to Dallas Theological Seminary? I'm like eating a hot dog, trying not to get hit by a foul ball, okay? I said, yep. It's the hazard of being a Bible guy. I said, yep. She says, Oh, you guys talk about evangelism. We do it. <laughs> Burn. Okay. All right. I'm watching this incredibly slow sporting event. Leave me alone. That was a shot at baseball, in case you were wondering. Here's the deal. No matter which side you actually lean towards, evangelism matters because if God elected everybody and that's the only people he's going to save, you still don't know who they are. So you're on a search mission. I'm trying to find all the elect people. And you're supposed to share the gospel, you've been commanded to do so. But I like what D.L. Moody says. He says, God save the elect and then elect some more. But the people over here are talking about free will, that it's choice that you have, that you have to make these decisions. And so you've got to persuade people and beg people. I love how Peter does it. In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, if you read verses 38 through 40 in that passage, we don't have time to read those verses right now, but it says that he's telling them that they need to repent of their sins, that they've killed God, they need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ, be baptized, and then it says he's begging them and pleading, he says, everybody who's called, those are the only people that can respond, come to him, but he then continues to exhort them, continues to plead with them. And so here's how I work in life. I believe that God has chosen. He has elected. You can't deny that. That's what the Bible teaches. But we also have a choice, and we're going to be held accountable for those cho- Every decision you make, you're going to be responsible for. How does that work together? Beyond my pay grade. I don't know. It's a mystery. But that's not what this passage is trying to solve. And so when your group starts to get off in, what election and predestination and this or that, here's what the passage is saying. If, that's a huge if, These blessings aren't for everyone that's here today, by the way. If you're in Christ, if you're in Him, then you've been chosen. We say it as a church all the time, connecting people to Jesus for life change. What does it mean to be connected? It means what Paul says in this passage is in Christ or in Him. In the Greek, in this one sentence, he talks about that phrase 11 times. 
through the whole book of Ephesians almost 40 times. I think it's 36 times. I didn't go through and actually count this week, but I think it's 36 times. The whole book of Ephesians, it says, in Him, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ, that phrase, that idea. So what does it mean? I'll give you another resource you can look up on your own later. Uh, John Piper, I saw an article this week by him. He just basically takes Bible verses. And he says, 13 stupendous realities of being in Christ. I can't teach you what it means today because there's too, it's too rich in the Bible. See, anytime I preach, just so you know, my goal is to give you some crumbs from a passage of Scripture that will lead you to the feast of God's Word. But there's just so much here. I feel almost guilty not telling you more today. But let me give you a couple of Piper's 13, just a couple that I highlighted as I was going through this article. Um, in 2 Timothy 1.9, it says, In Christ Jesus you were given grace before the world was created. He gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began, 2 Timothy 1.9. Did you see that? In Christ Jesus, it's a phrase we can read over. It's kind of like when you read the beginning of a letter. You go, to the saints in, and you just kind of skip all that, and it's a greeting, hello, to whom it may concern. Don't miss that phrase, it's important in the Bible. In Christ Jesus, all the promises of God are yes for you. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it's in Christ. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. You're being set apart for God in Christ Jesus. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, my, my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We oftentimes miss that. Famous verse, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life comes from being in Christ. It's being connected to Jesus. One of my favorite passages that Piper doesn't mention there, because it's all throughout the Bible, he only gives 13 in that article, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that in Christ you're a new creation. So being in Christ, if you want to summarize it, is that God does a radical transformation in your life. That doesn't mean, some of you, that doesn't mean that you had to have been a drug-dealing murderer before you came to Christ, okay? Because some of you came to Christ when you were five. I doubt you were packing heat, all right, at five. Maybe, maybe some of you, maybe. What it means is that at your core, at your heart level, you've been changed into a different person. New desires, new mind, different way of living in Christ. If, if, huge if, if you're in Christ. He's totally changed those things. What does it feel like to be chosen to be in Christ? He chose you to be in Christ to then do what? To change your identity, actually. Did you see what he calls these people? I mentioned it as we were coming through this passage, but in just in verse 1, he says, to the saints who were in Ephesus. Now, he wasn't saying there's like three of you here, this letter is two. He's writing to all the Christians in Ephesus, and he's calling them saints. Now, some of you grew up in a church background or denomination or subset of the Christianity that they teach you in order to become a saint, you have to have lived a, a very nice life, and it gets canonized if you've done some miracles after you're dead for a while, and these things have happened. Here's the problem with that. It's not in the Bible anywhere. Kind of like neat to read about, but not in the Bible. That's not biblically what it means to be a saint. Biblically, what it means to be a saint is that you're in Christ. You're talking to all the people that are in Christ. There's a, a book that I read prepping for this series. I recommend it to you. You can read it in probably an hour, some of you, a day for sure. It's by Jerry Bridges. It's called Who Am I? Our Identity in Christ. And uh, on page 66, he's talking about being a saint. He says this, the basic meaning of the verb sanctify 
is to separate or set apart. A saint is someone who's been set apart. Set apart for what? Then he says a better question is, set apart for whom? And the answer is, for God. And so, you have a new identity. You're a saint. Let that sink in, because I bet you some of you would be uncomfortable with that. I'm not typically the guy that says, turn to your neighbor and say, but I'm going to be that guy today. If you're in Christ, meaning you have a relationship with Jesus, you placed your faith in Him, will you turn to the person next to you and say, I'm a saint? Some of you are laughing about it. You're like, no, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Some of you are looking at your spouse like, I know what happened on the way in here. Right? Some of you are uncomfortable saying that. You know, we're talking about your identity here, and that's an uncomfortable thing for some of us. Because if I just say the title of the book, the, the book that Jerry Bridges wrote, who are you? Who are you? And some of you will be like, hi, I'm going to give you a name, and you, and you talk about what you do, or you talk about what you've accomplished, and, and we live in this city in RDU, or we've got, you know, more PhDs than anywhere per capita, and we've got PhDs and MBAs and CFPs and Snoop D-O-double-Gs, and we've got all kinds of, like, titles after our names, right? And we think that's our identity. I love what Paul Tripp says about that. He says that when we look at our identity, a lot of times what it is for us is it's like looking in a carnival mirror. Have you ever done that? It's a distorted image of yourself. You can tell it's you, but like there's, it's not really… He says that it's like it's what we do when we look horizontally for something that's supposed to be found vertically. And what the Bible's saying here might not be what you feel like is true or what you think is true, but this is what God's saying about you. This is your identity. You get your identity from God. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. That means you've been set apart for Him. In fact, Paul so emphasizes in this passage, he says it another way. He says, even as He chose us in Him, you weren't just chosen on purpose, you were chosen for a purpose. It says, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, holy and blameless. Now, here's something you need to know about the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters there's almost no commands. There's one. I challenge you to find it. There's one command in the first three chapters. The first three chapters of Ephesians all about our position in Christ. The last three chapters all about our practice. So this passage said not only are you a saint, it says that you've been chosen to be holy. And many of you go, well, I'm not holy. Notice this passage. There are passages that command you to be holy. This passage is not commanding you to be holy. It's saying you are holy. Because what he's saying is in your position, when God looks at you, he doesn't see what you did at the club last night. He doesn't see the gossip you told this week. He's not seeing your lies. He's not seeing your sexual morality. He's not seeing your anger and jealousy. He sees Christ. If you're in Christ and he sees Christ and Christ is holy, he chose you to be holy. He chose you to be holy means not to be pure. That's a secondary definition of holiness. To be holy means to be set apart. So you're a saint set apart for God. You've been chosen to be set apart for God. But then he says, blameless, that is pure. Like the sacrifices that were required in the Old Testament, like Jesus Christ on the cross in the New Testament. He chose you to be, so you are holy, blameless, chosen, saints. And then look what it says in verse 5. Predestined for adoption. You've been adopted into God's family. Everybody that is a child of God has been adopted into his family. Here's what you need to know about adoption. It's never an accident. You never have an unplanned adoption. Adoption is on purpose. God chose you so that you would have a new parent, new rights, new privileges, new name. 
The problem is that many of us live like orphans in this world. I remember reading a book one time, and the author was talking about adopting some kids from Russia. And in it, he talked about going to this Russian orphanage with his wife, and he talked about how bad it was, the smells, the care being poor, the just over, the overrun with how many kids there were, and food, and all that stuff. It was a bad place. But it was the only place those little kids knew. And he said, when we went to take them out of the orphanage, we already had prepared for them. We had brand new toys for them at home. We had painted the rooms. We had put their names on the wall. They had so many blessings, so many privileges, going to get a new name, going to get all these things. But they were scratching and clawing to try and stay at the orphanage. So many of us, it's like that with how we live here. Like this place is all there is because it's what we know. You've been adopted into God's family. You should be set apart, different in this world, chosen to be set apart for God in this world. And just think about, think about what's happened in the church and in our country and in the world these past 18 months of this pandemic. Think about this, something I was reflecting on over sabbatical. Just the fact that we've been praying and preaching and talking about revival for a couple years. Do you realize how ripe for revival we were about 18 months ago? Like go back and think, remember two weeks to flatten the curve? Remember that? I saw a meme the other day that said the hardest part about two weeks to flatten the curve is the first 18 months. <laughs> Remember, we, were, we shut everything down, right? Like everything got shut down and people are at home. And so what happened to many people's hearts as they started looking around going, do I, do I even like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Do I even like my job? Do I like my church? Why do, do I want this house? Like the status quo. So people started feeling uncomfortable with the status quo. And then they turned the news. A couple of people were watching the news at that time. And so they start watching the news and it's death tolls. Whether you agree with the way they counted or not is not the point. But they're seeing on TV, 100,000 people have died. 200,000 people have died. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God's purpose eternity in every person's heart. When we start thinking about death, we start asking questions naturally what happens after? So you have a world, not just Raleigh, not just America, a world of people that are not comfortable with the status quo, that are thinking about eternity. That is ripe for revival. We were on the cusp of revival. And then what happened? I don't know about every country, but I know what's happened here. Division about everything. Masks, vaccines, whether you can be around other humans, not around other humans, uh, race, police, like everything you can imagine, we're ready to fight about. Worldview, like everything. And then what happened was, because we're away from each other, is that we stopped thinking about each other as image bearers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as other humans, and we start thinking about people as views, and we start canceling them, we start being done with them. We start, we, when I came back from sabbatical, I was asking the pastors just about people, some of you that are new here, I was told about this many new people have come, about half of them are excited about our church, can't wait to meet you, about half of them are excited about our church and wonder if you're going to mess it up. And I'm like, probably, but I'm just kind of talking through this and talking about people that left. And we've had some people leave the church because, not because of the church, because the other people in the pews, and they see what they post on social media and they go, I can't worship by that person. Have you read the Bible? Like, we're supposed to love our enemies as Christians. You can't worship with a brother and sister in Christ you disagree with, but something's not even a primary thing. God wants more for us, church. He wants more for us as a country, as the church, as the world beyond what we could imagine. 
We've been blessed beyond what we can imagine. We've got a God that's beyond what we could imagine. He wants more than we could ever imagine. And all we've talked about in our passage so far is what He already did before you even existed. In eternity past, you've been blessed. But the Son is blessing you right now. Amen? God, the Son is blessing us right now. Look at this, verses uh, 7 through 10. I'll read to you. In Him, there's that phrase again, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses or sins, depends on your translation, according to, interesting phrase, the riches of His grace. Now, he's talking about wealth here. This is interesting because he's writing to Ephesus that was known as the Bank of Asia. They had this temple, the Temple of Artemis. Most pastors just talk about how sexually immoral it was and temple prostitutes, but what many of us overlook is one of the seven wonders of the world. They stored all many of the world's greatest treasures at the Temple of Artemis, works of art, jewels, coins. They were wealthy. And he says, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished, a generous God, upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And so, if we're ever going to have unity in things, it's going to be through Christ. And what has He done here? Go back to that phrase, according to the riches of His grace. Because it's interesting, He says, according to the riches. It'd be like this. Imagine this with me for a second. Imagine, and some of this will be easy, some of this will be pretty hard, but imagine you don't have food to feed your family and you're responsible to feed your family. Let you think about what would have to happen for that. The big medical bill, lose your job, something. But you don't have money to feed your family, you have to feed your family. You're sitting at a bus stop, park bench, just down the street there's a park. And Jeff Bezos comes and sits next to you. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, those of you who don't know. He's shipping stuff all over the world, and you look over and you recognize it. You saw him in like a Forbes article or something. This guy's a billionaire. He's making more money doing nothing on passive income than he can possibly spend. Okay? And you got to feed your family. So you decide, I'm going to ask him for some money. And you go, hey, I'm having a hard time feeding my family. Can, can you give me something? And he hands you $100. That'll feed your family. That'll feed your family that night. It depends on how desperate you feel. Ramen noodles, or you're going to take, get takeout. Like, depends. You get that night for sure. You could maybe have a month of food there, all right? But he didn't bless you according to his riches. He blessed you out of his riches. $100, not insignificant, but insignificant for him. If he blessed you according to his riches, he may have looked at you and said, you know, I was thinking about starting a grocery store chain in this community. Do you think you could run it if I signed the deed over to you? That'd be according to his riches as a billionaire. And can I tell you something else? Jeff Bezos has nothing on God. If you look, the wealthiest people in the world, uh, they created something, they own something, they run something. Uh, remember how powerful God is? Ex nihilo, out of nothing, he created everything, it's all his. And what does this passage say? According to, not out of, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on you. He wasn't being stingy. He's according to his riches, he's lavishing this grace on you so that you can have what? Look at the passage. Redemption is the first thing said there. Redemption is interesting for us because we live in such a different world as the Bible. In the Bible, redemption was the Passover. There's people, God's people, in bondage, in slavery. So, it speaks of people that are in prison or in slavery is what redemption is for. They're in slavery for 400 years, and then God redeems them out of that 
There's a Passover lamb, their blood on the post. They had faith in the blood of the lamb, and the death angel passed over them. They crossed on dry water, got provided a way out, an exodus, that's what it means, a way out of their bondage to freedom. That's Bible. To the people that Paul's writing to here in ancient Rome, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. If you wanted to set a slave free, what you had to do is purchase that slave, then write a document that declared their freedom. Right now, you think about people that want freedom. We watch, like, look at Afghanistan. If you haven't been watching the news, look at what people are doing to get out of it. You can believe whatever narrative you want on what's happening, but just what are they doing to leave that place? Clinging to the outside of an airplane? Did you see that? My wife told me a story she saw where there were mothers handing their babies over a wall to people they didn't even know who was on the other side of the wall just to get them out of there. I heard a pastor on a podcast that is over there in the Middle East that was talking about what's happening. Oh, the Taliban's making people put a black X on their house if they have a young woman in their home because they're going to come and take the young woman and do whatever they want to her. Because we have little kids in here, I won't say what all that is, but they're eventually going to sell them into sex slavery, just so you know. And so dads are going to their daughters and handing them guns and saying, you decide, you can use it on yourself or you can use it to defend yourself. Because if you don't put a black X on your house and you have a young person, they're going to kill everybody. They want out. So we can identify with the idea of a desire for freedom, but here's the problem with the great blessings we have of freedom in this country and of the prosperity of living in RDU is it doesn't, doesn't resonate in our own hearts. And so what happens, and here's what takes place, is that many people don't understand redemption and haven't been redeemed and aren't in Christ, but they believe true things about Jesus, and they've asked Jesus to be their personal assistant, not their personal Savior. I've got a great life. Isn't that the hard thing for those of you that are believers with sharing Christ with some of your friends? They don't think they need Jesus because life is good. And so then we present Jesus like he'll make it even better. No, here's, here's what the Bible says. Everybody who sins is a slave to sin. And you know what the Bible says about people that aren't in Christ? Everything they do is sin. When they go feed hungry people and homeless people, it's sin. Like, let that register. Why? Why is it evil? Because they're not doing it for God. Why are they doing it? For humanity, to feel better about themselves, for the kid. It doesn't matter. It's not for God. It's sin. Isaiah says it's like a pile of dirty rags. And so they're in bondage to sin. Everybody who sins is a slave to sin. They're in bondage to sin. And the penalty for sin is death. But Jesus paid the ransom. That's the language that's used. That's redemption language. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to redeem us. If you're in Christ, you've been redeemed. It means you've been forgiven of sins, past, present, and future. Forgiven, it says here. Redeemed, forgiveness of our trespasses. We've gone places we're not supposed to go. We have sinned. We've fallen short of God's standard, and you are forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your transgressions, your trespasses, those filthy rags from you, then when he looks at you, he sees you as a saint, as holy, as blameless, as forgiven, as his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? If you confess your sins, He is faithful. He is faithful. Not you. He is faithful. He will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And this is just about your position. We're going to get into the next, the next section. What you're going to find out is He's lavished this grace on us, but people who know this grace show this grace. The people that know this forgiveness forgive. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Just giving you a preview. But couldn't this world use some grace right now? Who's been given lavish grace? Us, the church. But the best is yet to come. 
He has done some amazing things. He is doing some amazing things. But look at what's coming. Look what the Holy Spirit is going to do. It says, God the Holy Spirit guarantees your inheritance. That's our third point. God the Holy Spirit guarantees your future blessing. Verses 11 through 14. In him, there it is again, we have obtained an inheritance. We already have an inheritance. Having been predestined, there's that word again. Sorry if it bothers you. There it is. According to the purpose, email God, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that, here's the reason, we who were first to hope in Christ, those who placed our faith in Jesus, might be to the praise of his glory. In him, there it is again, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Interesting language throughout this passage. Let me ask you, how many of you here have ever sold a, a piece of property? It could have been a condo, could have been a farm, could have been your house. So when somebody writes you a contract on that, and this is a hot market right now in RDU. I read an article the other day about a couple that has written 60 contracts to try and buy a house and hasn't bought one because they keep getting outbid. But when that person comes and brings you the contract, it's not just a piece of paper that says, I'm going to give you, I don't know what your property costs, $100,000 for this uh, plot of land that you have. They're also going to give you an earnest money check. Earnest money means it's a deposit. It's a, there's more to come. But to show you how serious I am, here's some money right now. The language that's used for the Holy Spirit being given to you is in earnest. It's God saying, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit right now. You've been sealed. To be sealed in that time was like a mark on a letter or a package that was being shipped. It showed authenticity of ownership. You're being sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so, believer, if you're a follower of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 says that. You don't have to wait for a second blessing. At the moment of salvation, you received the Holy Spirit. Everybody who is in Christ has the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. The seal of that is you see evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So Galatians 5, 22 to 23 would be a great spot to look at for that. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, gentleness, those things. But he's also comforting you, convicting you, guiding you, directing you. It's the Holy Spirit does, enlightening you. The Scripture is inspired, but he illuminates the Scripture so that when you're reading it, you can understand. Sometimes things are hard to understand, but the Holy Spirit helps you know what it is that's being said there, reminds you of truth that you know in difficult times when you're in a spiritual battle. Holy Spirit, that's the evidence. If you have that in your life, it's a sign that you're in Christ. That means you're sealed by Him. It's also a sign that the best is yet to come because you have an inheritance. You've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit that guarantees… Think about that word, guarantees. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen Tommy Boy, but that's what I can't get out of my head right now need more self-control. Anyway, guarantees, guarantees only as good as the person who gives the guarantee. The other day I got home uh, and my neighbor who's got an immaculate yard, he's retired. And so I use that as my excuse. He's retired. Uh, he's out there. He's spraying some stuff on his bushes. And I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was like to make the bushes look prettier or what it was. So I walked over to him. I said, what are you doing, Gary? Gary said, I got grass that's growing up through my bushes. And so I want to kill the grass, but not the bushes. I said, how do you know that's not going to kill the bushes? He says, got a guarantee. It guarantees it'll kill the grass and out the bushes. He keeps spraying. We stand there for about a minute, and I just said, what if it does kill the bush? And he said, what, what do you mean? It's a guarantee. It won't kill the bush. I said, but yeah, but so what if it does? You're going to take it back to Walmart? 16-year-old clerk's going to be standing there. He's like, I'll give you your money back. You can buy more of the spray. He's like, I don't want the spray. It kills the bush. I want a new bush. I said, you have a terrible guarantee, Gary. I don't know if it worked or not, but it's a bad guarantee. You have 
a God who's never gone back on a promise, giving you an earnest deposit. So what is it that the inheritance is going to be? Because when you sell a property, right, and you say it's $100,000 and they give you $1,000 or $10,000 earnest money, what they're saying is you get more of the same thing. You receive the Holy Spirit. He's going, I'm giving you more. You're going to experience more of me. There's more of, you're going to get God. You're going to be with God. That is the inheritance. We're going to talk more about it next week when we get into the next passage. But the, you have the Holy Spirit in you. What an incredible inheritance. Problem again, many of us live like we don't have an inheritance. There was a woman in June and of this year. Her name was Kathy Boone. You can look her up online if you want. Who died in Oregon in a homeless shelter. And uh, she didn't know she had an inheritance waiting for her about a million dollars. Her mom had died in 2016, left her this inheritance. The family tried to find her. Uh, Facebook, emails, searching for her through other relationships, even hired a private detective, could not find her. And she died homeless, preventable death, and had a million dollars sitting in the bank. Her father, who's still alive, said when he was interviewed, it's such a shame. She could have used the money and it was just sitting right there. And she needed it in the worst way. We have an inheritance. We've started to receive the inheritance because we have the Holy Spirit's influence in our life. But the best is you have to come in the inheritance. And if you have an inheritance, wouldn't, if you knew you were going to get a billion dollars next week, wouldn't that change how you live this week? You have an inheritance from God who blesses according to His riches and owns it all and is promising you an inheritance. Shouldn't that change how we live here? We'll talk more about inheritance next week because I haven't answered the question I was asking you when we talked about Private Ryan. Why me? We've talked about how blessed you are. You are blessed. You are a saint. Your identity has been changed. You are holy. You are blameless. You've been chosen. He's got a plan for you. He did it on purpose, for a purpose, before the beginning of time, redeemed you, forgiven you. He's blessed you with lavish grace. He's given you an inheritance. Maybe it's because I haven't preached in three months, but I've done a pretty terrible job actually explaining these sections of this Scripture because I don't know if you've noticed, every time I've cut off the last verse. As we went through verses 3 through 6, I explained up to verse 5. As we're going through the next section, I explained up to, well, verse 12, and left it off, and verse 14, and left it. We read them, but I didn't say anything about them. Did you see them? Because they're the answer of why you're blessed. And it's our fourth point. You're blessed to bring praise to God. You're blessed by God to bring praise to God. Look at what it says. I'll just read you those verses. Remember, verse 3 sets everything up. Blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we bless God because He's blessed us. And then in verse 6, after talking about choosing and changing and being holy and blameless and adopting and predestining us, it says, why? Verse 6 to the praise of His glorious grace, which He's blessed us in the Beloved. Then later, after redemption and forgiveness, according to His riches, this lavish grace, this inheritance, verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Then after wetting our appetites with all these things and saying the best is yet to come, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our, talking about the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. You were blessed, and it's not even about you. Amen? And if you want to argue that it is in your small groups, remember, it started before there was a you. 
He chose you before the beginning of time, before the foundations of the earth. And that wasn't like, oh, tomorrow I'm going to create everything. I better start blessing. No, it's in his nature. It's who he is. He's a God of blessing. That's what it's talking about and him blessing you that way. You've been blessed. Amen? Why? Because of the nature of the God who's blessing you. He changes your identity. And we're going to talk more about living according to that identity as we continue on throughout this series. But if you're not in Christ, if you're not in Christ, you can be today. Maybe God did choose you, but you have a choice to make today. You have to choose whether or not you want to surrender your life to Him and ask Him to forgive you of your sins, and that's how you become in Christ. If you want to do that today, then in a moment I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come up here. They're going to play some songs, and there's going to be some people over to this side of the room, my right, your left. Just walk over there. They'll find you, and they'll tell you how you can have a relationship with Christ. Some of you might want to talk to the Lord today, and the worship team is going to come up here, and they're going to play. If you just want to come down here and kneel down and pray, no one will mess with you. Just you and the Lord can talk. Let me pray for us as a church that God would do a work in us today. Father, I come before you thankful for your grace. It's so lavished into my life, so lavished in the lives of those in this room that are in Christ, so lavished in the lives of those that are watching online that are in your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that everybody who hears these words today would be in your Son, Jesus, before the end of this day today. Father, I pray for those who need to place their faith in your son Jesus, they would do so before they leave this room. If you're online, that you would write in and one of our pastors would talk with you. Father, I pray for those that are in your son Jesus Christ. They would see these blessings they've been given and they would return that to you with a life lived, with lips that praise you. Psalm 63, your love is so amazing. My lips will praise you. Father God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Strengthen us to be people that shine in the darkness of this world right now, in the division that we be people of unity, that in the darkness we be people of light, that in the decay and falling apart of things that we would be salt. It's in Jesus' name I pray.